organelles and protein recap. So nucleoid is a double membrane with chromatin DNA with it. Mitochondria is double membraned and it's a site of aerobic respiration. Ribosomes are two RNA subunits of translation. The rough endoplasmic reticulum is for protein transport and has ribosomes, whilst the, um, the smooth endoplasmic reticulum is bare and is for lipid transport. The Golgi apparatus is for protein modification and storage. The cytosol is where metabolism takes place. Peroxisomes are for toxic breakdown, so for example, of hydrogen peroxide. Centrosomes are where the microtubules radiate from. Axon filaments are the thinnest cytoskeleton and is for cytokinesis and contraction. Intermediate fil filaments are for tensile strength. And the thickest cytoskeleton filament is um, microtubules. Lysozymes are for macromolecule hydrolysis and intracellular digestion. Proteins. Globular proteins are soluble and um, can be such as insulin, glucagon or enzymes. They're sensitive to environmental changes. Fibrous proteins are elongated for structural rigidity. So for example, collagen, actin, spider silk. Membranous proteins provide passage for solutes and they have hydrophilic and hydrophobic regions, for example, sodium or potassium channels. The structure of a protein is one primary, um, the order of the amino acids. Secondary, alpha helix or beta-plated sheets with local hydrogen bonds between the aminate groups and the carboxyl groups and ionic and hydrophobic instantaneous dipoles, all kinds of different bonds. Tertiary structure is the protein shape and it's held by its local interactions. So hydrogen bonds, disulfide bridges, ionic interactions, hydrophobic interactions. Quaternary is the shape um, with more than one subunit and maybe also prosthetic groups. Cells. So the cell membrane is a phospholipid bilayer, which is lipid selective, amphipathic, which means it's hydrophobic and hydrophilic, and it's a fluid bilayer so that after cell division it can reform, things can move in and out by endoexocytosis, things can diffuse in so often. And the main phospholipids, the four major phospholipids are phosphatidyl ethanol aminate, phosphatidylserine, phosphatidylcholine, and syngomyelin, which has a different structure, aided by its different name. Cholesterol packs the bilayer together and makes it more hydrophobic, so it's less fluid, it's more rigid. Membrane proteins, for example, integral ones such as single pass, multipass, the beta barrel lipid links are associated with a lipid after translation or peripheral proteins. Transduction lipids bind to a protein um, and then change its shape and then these ones are easily degraded so they can be used and destroyed um, in response to signal. Functions of proteins are for transport as enzymes to send signals as a receptor, cell to cell recognition and things like that. So you have simple diffusion across a gradient not using any help. Facilitated diffusion as well across a gradient but uses the help of proteins. So this can be through diffusion channels where it has like a hydrophilic like entry pore through the membrane. And she's non-directional, just discriminates by size and charge and it's quite fast compared to the facilitated diffusion uniporter channels. Uniporter, it ports one. So it binds two solutes um, and then changes shape to be able to release the thing that it needs to to the other side. And this is highly selective and slow. Electrochemical gradient is just like a combination of the chemical gradient, concentration gradient and the electrical gradient. And this is maintained by, and this is maintained by active transport which is, for example, primary active transport by ATP-driven pumps. So it uses the hydrolysis of ATP, for example, Na plus K plus channels, which takes three Na plus out to K plus in, so more, more sodium than potassium, more sodium than potassium. Sodium out, potassium in. Three sodium to potassium. So ATP is hydrolyzed, and then it uses the phosphate to phosphate the protein pump active. Secondary active transport is coupled. So, for example, the Na plus glucose simple to simple to same direction in the gut epithelia. So it binds the Na plus and the glucose. It takes glucose against the gradient and it takes the sodium across the gradient. So it basically hinges off of um, it hinges off of sodium's high concentration gradient and glucose just comes with it. An antiporter takes it in opposite directions. So for example, the Na plus Ca2 plus antiporter in cardiac muscle. The Ca2 plus is hinging off of the sodium. So the sodium enters across the gradient in and calcium leaves against the gradient. This is to um, lessen contraction. Cell proliferation. So in the cell cycle, 
you start with G1, so the cell is preparing, preparing to divide, it's surveying, and you have the restriction point G1, where it's like, are there the right um, nutrients available? Is there anything inhibitory? Is there everything I need to divide? Then you go into the G1S checkpoint, where it's like, is the DNA damaged before we go on to the S phase, which is where the DNA will actually replicate. Then you have, um, after that, you go into G2, where all the cells' contents replicate as well, and it grows. Then you have the G2M phase um, checkpoint, which is M for mitosis this time. And this is where it's like, did the chromosomes replicate properly? Is it incomplete? Is it damaged DNA as well? Then you go into mitosis where it divides. Then you have the M checkpoint, which is metaphase, metaphase checkpoint, where it's like, did the spender fibers attach? Did they attach properly before we go into anaphase? And then it continues anaphase all the way to cytokinesis. Then enzymes also help in the cell cycle. So you have kinases. Kinases phosphorylate things. They phosphorylate things. This might activate them or um, inhibit them. So for example, CDKs, cyclin-dependent kinases, they're dependent on cyclin to bind to them first to be activated. And then there are different types. So it's like an S CDK, there's a G1 CDK, and they increase, decrease depending on when in the cell cycle. And when they're not needed, ubiquitin, ubiquitin, ubiquitin binds the cyclin, degrades it, and then it has to wait, the CDK has to wait the cyclin again. So there are tumor suppressor genes which can become oncogenic, oncogenic cancer-causing. So for example, the retinoblastoma protein, PRB, PRB is for RP, restriction point. PRB is for the restriction point. So it inhibits the transcription factor that causes the cell cycle. But if there are growth factors present, then cyclin CDK will inactivate it, and then it'll be able to go into the cell cycle. So the PRB just makes sure that cell cycle isn't happening when it doesn't need to happen. It basically controls the restriction point. Um, but if you have faulty genes for the PRB, then you won't be able to control the restriction point. Protein P53 controls the G1S checkpoint. So if there's DNA damage, which happens, which is checked for at that checkpoint, so DNA damage during G1S, P53 is activated to make P21 protein, which is a CDK inhibitor. The CDKs that inhibits are G1S or the S CDK. So P21 will inactivate G1S CDK or S CDK. And the cell cycle, this is how its mechanism works. So there's a receptor tyrosine kinase, which when activated, so when an agonist binds, and it receives a signal, it's dimerized, and then it's phosphorylated, so there's like this phosph um, phosphate tail. Then it causes an adapter protein to bind to RDK, and then a RAS protein binds to that adapter protein, and then that makes RAS activated, and the signal is transferred to the nucleus, which causes MYC to be transcribed and made for the cell cycle to start. And during this, um, there might be things that cause it to turn into cancer um, and become oncogenic. So for example, the RTK itself it might be overexpressed or overactive, and then the signal is sent when it doesn't need to be sent. Or the VAS protein. The VAS protein is usually controlled by GTPase as a molecular switch, but it might become permanently active. Also, the MYC gene might be overexpressed, so transcribed and made too much, which is caused deregulation. Mitosis. So for mitosis, you have the kinetochores, which is where the kinetochore microtubules attached. The kinetochores are um, at the centromere of the chromosome. Not to be confused with centrosome. Centrosome for cell. Each cell has a centrosome. Each chromosome has a centromere. Some for somal cell. Then you have the interpolar microtubules, which connect the poles to pull them apart. And you have the aster microtubules, which orientate the spindle fibers. So mitosis, start. Prophase, chromosomes condense. Transcription stops and centrosomes move apart. Prometaphase, nuclear membrane breaks down and the spindle fibers attach to the kinetochores. Metaphase, the chromosomes align at the equator and the kinetochore microtubules that are attached to the kinetochores also attach to the um, opposite poles. Then you have the metaphase checkpoint, which is checking are the spindle fibers properly attached. Then you, before it divides for the next stage, so you know anaphase is obviously going to be pulling apart. So anaphase, sister chromatids separate and the kinetochores contract and shorten to pull the 
chromosomes apart from each other, and also the polar microtubules push the poles apart. Then in telophase, the chromosomes are now at the poles, and the nuclear membrane starts reforming and transcription is starting again, and then the pes-plasma membrane starts cleaving. Then you have cytokinesis. The nuclear membrane is now... The nuclear envelope is... Then you have cytokinesis. The nuclear envelope is now completely complete. And then a contractile ring forms, which forms into a cleavage furrow, which then divides the cell into two, so you now have two... So you now have two cells. Myosis is a bit different, um, and it has independent chromosome segregation. Um, so the chromosomes segregate individually each other, one another um, for more variation, and you also have crossing over forming chiasmata for also more variation, um, and it's an induction division. Because you start off with a diploid parent cell and form haploid daughter cells. So spermatogenesis from spermatogonia, which are undifferentiated. So spermatogenesis from spermatogonia, which are undifferentiated, they divide and forms four haploid sperm. Eugenesis requires a lot less divisions than sperm. It stops after prophase 1, um, waiting for ovulation, and it stops again during metaphase 2, waiting for fertilisation. And it only creates one functional egg because it makes two polar bodies after, which don't have much cytoplasm, so that the egg can have lots of cytoplasm for when it starts quickly dividing after fertilisation. Cell differentiation. So the cell starts as a stem cell, which is pluripotent. Then it goes into commitment process and goes into progenitor, which is multipotent. Then it eventually goes into a terminally differentiated cell, which is unipotent. And different cell types have different proteins, they have different uh, metabolic profiles. But like all in all, like most cells share the same proteins, they're not unique. So for example, red blood cells have spectrin, so that they can have like squeeze into narrow blood vessels. But platelets have thumbprin and collagen, so that they can like repair damaged blood vessels. Cell differentiation is regulated by like transcription factors. So like transcription factors have an activation domain, which um, binds to RNA polymerase, and it has a binding domain, which will bind to the DNA sequence. And then different combinations of the transcription factors will lead to different genes and different proteins and different cell types but like differentiation needs extracellular signaling for example in hemo for example in hemopoiesis erythropoietin is produced by the proximal tubule of the kidney when there's low oxygen and then it causes transcriptin factors to be made which makes more red blood cells progenitors and more red blood cells but differentiation can also be deregulated so for example teratonia which is a tumor of stem cells you have like loads of different types of cell types made from one cell or b-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia which is a mutation, so there's loads of progenitor B-cells, and that makes the blood milky. But there's also clinical applications, so for example, induced pluripotent stem cells, IPS cells. So you take a terminally differentiated cell, but then you just add like the main three transcription factors, and then it becomes an induced pluripotent stem cell. It's differentiated into the cell you need. Or you can take like a type of cell from a person, like from their arm or something, and then you can induce it into the affected cell type. Then you can look at how the mutation of the disease has caused harm to their cell, you can look at how drugs can be used to treat that cell, so you basically test on the cell like in an isolated place. DNA. DNA is double-stranded, RNA is single-stranded. DNA has intermolecular base pairings, so between molecules. RNA has intramolecular, so between the atoms and the molecules. DNA is deoxyribose, RNA is ribose. DNA, the CT has no OH, so it's more stable, whilst RNA, the C2, has no OH, so it's unstable. Nucleotides are joined by phosphodiester linkages, which release water, and the five prime is phosphorus. The three prime is hydroxyl. So five prime phosphorus, three prime hydroxyl, five ph 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 phosphorus, five phosphorus. Purines, pure H, pure H. So purines are A and G. Pyrimidines are C and D. So purines are what? A and G. So it's double helix, anti-parallel, and there are hydrogen bonds between the bases. There are two hydrogen bonds between A and T, three between G and Z. Exons are coding, exons expressed, introns are intervening, introns are non-coding. Enhancers are distal, promoters are proximal. They are like a, a regulatory sequence on the five prime end of DNA. Um, and satellite DNA is repeat sequences. Many satellites are longer repeats, longer repeats, such as telomeres. Microsatellites are shorter repeats, like CAG, and they are such as introns. So microsatellites are short to micro shorter, mini are longer. 
So telomeres, let the tip of the chromosome replicate. Centromeres are where the spindle fibers attach. Those are examples of repeat sequences. But many satellites, such as telomeres, can cause like the cell division to mispair. Mis so for some DNA to be deleted, some to be inserted. Um, but not all RNA is translated, so it can have other functions such as tRNA, snoRNA, snRNA, rRNA, microRNA, which inhibits translation. And then chromatin of DNA is for its package and condensed. So during interphase, DNA is decondensed, but during mitosis, it's condensed. Remember, in prophase, DNA condenses. But DNA is made up of a helix of around 200 base pairs. I know, 200. And they are wound around histone cores. So a nucleosome has DNA wrapped around eight histones, which are made of four types, H2A, H2B, H3, H4. So 2A, 2B, 3, 4. There are two of each, so that's eight. And the histone tails can be modified. So for example, you can add or remove an acetyl to the lysine residues. You can ubiquitonolate the lysine, or you can like phosphorylate the serine. And DNA also has like some dosage conversation going on. So like, because male chromosomes males only have XY and the Y is shorter. Some cells, they deactivate the X chromosome during the blastocyst stage of development, so that is equal. I know, I know. DNA replication. DNA replication happens in a 5' to 3'. It's semi-conservative, so it makes one new strand and there's one new old strand. And the DNTPs, which are deoxyribonucleotide triphosphates, are added to the 3' end. So it starts off initiated proteins, like they find the um, replication origin, and then open up the helix. Then DNA polymerase starts adding new DNTPs to the 3' end, but it also has like a proofreading function, so it can like, clear up its mistakes. In opposite direction so then there's okazaki fragments that are made because the replication fork moves in the direction of the lagging strand three prime end but dna polymerase needs to add dntp to the three prime end so it's like the fork is opening up and then it's like going in the opposite direction and then going in the opposite direction so it creates like these fragments because of that rna primers are start sites for the dna polymerase for adding dntps so the leading strand only needs one but the lagging strand needs many because it keeps making those new fragments and it keeps moving as the replication fork moves then dna polymerase i replaces the rna primers with DNA, because you don't need those RNA primers, do you? Then DNA ligase nixials the Okazaki fragments together. DNA transcription. So DNA transcription is also in a 5' to 3', but it adds NTPs instead of DNTPs because it's RNA. And it makes like, it basically makes like the RNA form of the coding strand using the template strand. So transcription factors bind to the promoter, which brings the RNA polymerase to start. And regulatory proteins bind to enhancers to inhibit or enhance transcription. But transcription only makes pre-mRNA, it's not mature yet. You still need to do like splicing to make snRNAs to recognise the splicing sites and move introns. Um, and it can do this in many different ways because the proteome is bigger than the genome, so it splices in many different ways. And you need to add a poly-A tail to the 3' end because the 3' end is where you just finished, so you'd add the tail there. Poly-A tail to the 3' end and a cap to the 5' end for stability. DNA translation uses ribosomes, which are complexes which string the amino acids together and bring together polypeptides, depending on the mRNA sequence. And then that's brought by tRNAs, which have like a hairpin loop-like structure that are stabilised by the base pairing. And they carry an amino acid and they have an anticodon. Polyribosomes are many ribosomes translating one mRNA. And mRNA starts at its sites are at the 5' end, and it's like UAA, UGA, UAG. Epigenetics. Epigenetics is just stating that the phenotype is a combination of genes and environment because all cells have housekeeping genes which are just genes that are present in all cells for basic function for example for pyruvate kinase which is step 10 of glycolysis and RNA polymerase but gene expression can be controlled at different stages such as before the gene is even transcribed, when it's translated, when it's spliced, um, during protein activation, when it's transported and things like that so you can change the gene depending on the environment. Mutations Mutations. So mutations can be spontaneous, so from like DNA replication errors, or they can be from mutagenic agents, and they can be from microsatellites, mini satellites. They can be from changes in bases, changes in the chromosome structure, changes in chromosome number, deletions, duplications, insertions, and they can cause like just normal variations, like changes in eye color. They can affect how you react to diseases or diet or medications. So, for example, 
obesity, you can, you're more likely to get that. It can cause outright just genetic disorders in general, such as PKU, it can cause an increased likelihood of disease, such as diabetes. But you can analyse this through, for example, DNA sequencing to see the bases or microarray analysis, also to see like large DNA blocks or light microscopic microscopy to see the entire chromosome. So DNA sequencing works by amplifying the DNA by PCR, which makes like loads of different fragments of different lengths. Then you can sort them by their length, then you can basically sequence the DNA. So SMPs are single nucleotide polymorphisms. They're very common, it's just like a change like a single base pair and it usually doesn't have any effects. So spontaneous mutations such as during DNA replication, so like an error in um, DNA replication, and that will be carried to like daughter cells for mitosis or meiosis. Mutagenic agents can be endogenous or exogenous. So endogenous DNA damage, for example, depurination, so you lose A or G, which are pure age purines, or delamination, so cytosine turns into uracil, but cytosine can also be methylated to thymite, so cytosine's having a hard life in it. So cytosine can go to uracil by delamination, or can go to thymine by methylation. Or extracellular damage, so for example, UV can dimerize thymine, which just disrupts the whole DNA structure. Or environmental chemicals or ionizing radiation can break DNA, which can lead to aneuploidy. But DNA polymerase has proofreading machinery to stop um, the spontaneous mutations from DNA replication. Or by like the G2 checkpoint in mitosis, or DNA mismatch repair systems, which look for bad DNA and remove it, and then make a whole new strand, which would be better. For mutagenic agents, for example, from the effects of thymine dimers or from chemicals, you can have DNA excision repair mechanisms, or if it's from like DNA breaks from like ionizing radiation or reactive oxygen, you can enjoin the broken DNA ends or use homologous um, recombinations. So getting the other chromatids to help make the missing DNA break. So types of mutation, they can be like on the protein coding part, it can be on the regulatory sequence, they can be on the introns, and they can be silent, so it doesn't change the amino acid sequence. They can be missense, so it changes the amino acid, but it can either have an effect or not. It can be nonsense, where the amino acid is changed into a stop codon, so it's like truncated, and then the rest of the mRNA is decayed by nonsense mediated decay. There can be a splice site mutation, so the protein is altered as the exons and introns are spliced differently. There can be frame shift mutation where bases are added or deleted, and then that causes a different amino acid sequence and the stop codon might come early, which will lead to um, nonsense mediated decay as well. Um, and also short tandem repeats can also cause like insertions and deletions, so frame shift mutations, and then that will cause the chromosomes to not align properly and the chromatids will cross over like at the wrong place, like the chromosomes will just be like uneven and some places might be deleted, some places might be duplicated where they don't need to. Chromosomes. Chromosomes are made of two sister chromatids, and each chromatid is its own like DNA helix. So it has the telomere, which is the cap at the top, which makes sure that the tip of the chromosome can replicate. And then the P arms are petite, short, Q arms long. The centromere is where the chromatids join. The light bands are less condensed chromatin, the dark bands are condensed chromatin. And then chromosomes can be analysed by karyotyping, so that golden medium stained and taken a photo of, by fluorescent in-situ hybridization or array CGH, which shows how many copies of chromosome there are. Abnormalities can be classed by like whether it affects the chromosome number or the chromosome structure and whether they're constitutional, so the whole body, whether they're somatic, so in certain cells or tissues. Chromosome abnormalities, the risk of them are increased with maternal age as myosis stops, myosis 2 stops before fertilisation. So during this stage, there might be a long gap before myosis actually finally completes and then the spindle formation and the repair mechanisms are at risk of degrading and they might become worse. And then this might lead to non-disjunction. Non-disjunction are when cystic chromatids don't separate properly. And it's going to lead to aneuploidy, which is an abnormal number of chromosomes. So trisomy, where you have more than, one more than you need. Monosomy, where you have one less than you need. Polyploidy, which is when you have too many pairs of chromosomes. So triploidy, three pairs. And tetraploidy, which is four pairs. But actually, for chromosome abnormalities, the development abnormalities are actually more severe when you have less chromosomes than you need. So some examples are trisomy 18, which leads to congenital malformations of the heart and kidneys. Trisomy 13, malformations and congenital heart disease. 
Kleinfelter 47XXY, which leads to poorly developed sex characteristics. Turner 45X, which will lead to primary gonadal failure. So Down syndrome. Some symptoms of Down syndrome are the palmar crease, a wide nose bridge, cataracts, and in adults usually Alzheimer's. And it's because they have 1.5 times the normal dose gene dosage of chromosome 21. Um, and the three causes of it are 95% are due to trisomy 21, so that chromosomal number abnormality. 4% are due to 4% 4 are due to Robertsonian translocation. 1% are due to mosaicism, but they will usually have milder symptoms because they have half cells with normal chromosomes and half cells with trisomy 21. So chromosomal abnormalities in structure can be from like translocations, deletions, duplications, rearrangements. But the example I'm going to say is Robertsonian translocation, and this happens for acrocentric chromosomes. So that's why they have their centromere like near the end of the chromosome, and then that when they break their arms, the longer Q arms fuse, but the P arms lost and then this can either be balanced where for both the chromosome types there will be like an equal amount of each but for unbalanced there'll be more in one chromosome than another and for balanced carriers for two balanced carriers the chances of their child being normal is one six one six of them being a carrier one six that they'll have down syndrome and then a half chance that they'll have a lethal um, genetic disorder but the unbalanced isn't from the translocation it's from when you inherit it from somebody who's a balanced carrier so if you inherit the wrong the wrong gamete, then you can you can end up getting inheriting a balan unbalanced translocation, or you, you could inherit a balanced translocation. Just depends on luck. But reciprocal translocation is where two non-homologous chromosomes break, and then they share the fragments, like they just swap. And then with that, if you are a carrier of that, there's a quarter chance of normal, a quarter chance of a balanced carrier, and a half chance, and a half chance of abnormality, which can lead to miscarriage or congenital malformation. Um, mosaicism is just when you have two different cell populations with different DNA lines because of mitosis error, and that can be somatic so in the body or gonadal, only in the gonads. Genetic disorders, so they can be single gene, which is from mutations in a single gene, they usually cause function loss. They can be multifactorial diseases, also known as common complex disorders, which are caused by variations in genes um, and discrimination with environments, and this causes functional change. They can be chromosome disorders, so gene which leads to gene dosage imbalances, mitochondrial disorders, which usually affects organ systems that need lots of energy, for example, the neuromuscular system. And it's only inherited from females because sperm mitochondria is expelled. They can be somatic mutations, which are cancer-causing, as they affect both alloys of the growth genes. Genetic disorders can be autosomal dominant, so that has vertical transmission from parents to children. There's a half chance of getting it from an autosomal dominant parent. For example, familial hypercholesterolemia, Huntington's. And autosomal recessive diseases, there's a quarter chance from carrier parents. For example, phenylketonuria, PKU. Cystic fibrosis or congenital adrenal hyperplasia. X-linked dominant diseases are very rare, but in some cases, the hemizygous males are affected might be more severely affected than heterozygous females that get it, for example, in vitamin D-resistant rickets. Or in some cases, the males might be so heavily affected that there's a spontaneous abortion even, so you'll only see affected females for that condition, for example, incontentia pigment. X-linked recessive diseases, for example, Duchenne muscular dystrophy or haemophilia. And um, from a carrier mother, there's a half percent chance of having an offspring that has an affected LL. And so for a male, that would be a affected son or a carrier daughter. And in the patterns for it, all daughters of affected males are carriers. There's no male-to-male -male transmission, so even though there's an affected father, the sons will be unaffected. But female carriers tend to show mild symptoms. So having a female affected by an excellent recessive disease is very rare, but can happen by the female being homozygous for the disease. They might only have one X chromosome, so Turner's disease, Turner's 45, but they only have one X. Or X autosome translocations, or maybe the inactivation of one of the X chromosomes. So top signs to look out for. If it's autosomal dominant, there'll be vertical transmission, and there'll be an equal amount of affected males and affected females. There won't be any bias there. And there'll be transmission from all sexes to all sexes, so from male to female, female to male. 
Um, and for autosomal recessive, it'll be horizontal transmission instead. So if there's loads of siblings affected, um, coansanguinity, so incest gives more support for it. If it's, I think, recessive, there'll be almost only males affected. There will be carrier females to sun transmission. There'll be um, affected males who can't pass on to their sons. But if it's X-linked dominant, there'll probably be more affected females and sons. Um, but there might be miscarriages in sons. It will maybe less severe in females because of lionization, which is X-linked activation. And the males will only transmit to daughters. But if only the affected mother's children are affected, then it's probably mitochondrial. So if there's an affected male and he's not passing it to his children, then it's probably mitochondrial. If there's loads of malformations or stillbirths, it's probably a chromosomal translocation. Other unusual inheritance patterns include unipolarism, so they get both of the homologous chromosomes only from one parent, maybe because the other parent's ones were defect, or imprinting issues, so like the gene expressed is different depending on whether it was inherited from the mother or the father. Mendelian inheritance. Mendelian inheritance is usually from single gene disorders that cause usually function loss. Whether a disease is recessive or dominant depends on how well the, the cell can cope with having only one half of the gene project. Whether a whether a disorder is dominant or recessive depends on how well the cell can cope with having only half of the genes product. So when they're heterozygous, how well can they cope with only having that half allele? So if it affects a structural protein or receptor, then it'll be a dominant disease. So for example, in familial hypercholesterolemia, they'll only have half the number of normal LDL receptors because they've only got half of the gene product. Also, if it affects an enzyme, then it'll be a recessive disease. So there are exceptions to autosomal dominant inheritance, such as variable expressivity. So the severity of the inherited disease can be different depending on people. For example, in neurofibromatosis type 1, they have like skin cafe la patches, and each person, like, they have different signs of the same disease. Another exception is reduced penetrance, so you might be heterozygous for the autosomal dominant disease, but you don't show any signs, you're basically like the skipped person. For example, with Huntington disease, which causes involuntary movement and dementia, there's age-related penetrance, so only 50% get signs by 50. There's also sex limitations, so sometimes the features might show only in one sex. Another exception is new mutations, de novo, for example, achondroplasia. So like in the paternal gonads, there might be mutations there, especially with an increase in paternal age because of all the cell divisions from spermatogenesis. There's also anticipation, so that there are these things called trinucleotide repeat expansions, so TNRs, trinucleotide repeat expansions. And the more TNRs that you inherit down the generations, then you might get an early onset or more severe symptoms. For example, in Huntington, the CAG trinucleotide repeat expansion, the number of expansions inherited down the generations starts increasing, and then you get too many glutamine residues, which makes the protein forms aggregate in the brain, which causes brain cell death. Or another exception is mosaicism, which is caused by poor cell division or DNA replication errors, and it can cause structural or numerical chromosomal abnormalities. And it explains why sometimes you can have a perfectly unaffected parent but have affected children, because if it's gonadal, it won't express in the parent, but it will be transmitted to the offspring, because only gonadal mutations are transmitted to offspring. So before children are born, they can do like DNA sequencing to identify the mutation or and then the options after that are to postpone the pregnancy, to maybe not have any children at all, so go through adoption, maybe to get an egg donor, to just accept the risk and have the child anyways. But the probability of the carrier can be worked out through Hardy-Weinberg's probability of carrier, which is 2Q minus 2Q squared, where Q is the probability of being having a recessive allele. And this is only where we're random mating occurs and there's no new alleles appearing. Common complex disorders. Common complex... Common complex disorders. Common complex disorders are a combination of multifactorial and Mendelian inheritance. So multifactorial inheritance is when multiple genes, so polygenic genes, they cause like a predisposition, genetic predisposition, then you need the environmental impacts in combination with that which causes the disease. Whilst Mendelian inheritance is just a single gene causing a large effect. And for multifactorial inheritance, there's a low recurrence rate, um, meaning that there's a low chance of if somebody else in the family has it, that another person in the family will. Whilst Mendelian inheritance, it has a high recurrence rate, they're unifactorial and rare, whilst multifactorial diseases are multifactorial and very common. So common, multifactorial, Mendelian are rare. For example, multifactorial inheritance diseases, coronary artery disease, diabetes mellitus, hypertension, whilst examples of Mendelian diseases are 
familial hypercholesterolemia, Marfan syndrome, cystic fibrosis, sickle cell, and Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So in order to study the genetic and environmental influence, they do like um, long observational studies, finding the incidence over families, twins, adoptive studies, migration studies, so you can see like how much is biological, how much is environmental, then you can find the recurrence risks, so like if my sister has it, what's the risk that I'll have it too? And polygenic inheritance just means like multiple genes make a small contribution to the phenotype and it creates a normal distribution curve. And concordance is the probability that um, the same genes will be inherited by two relatives. Your liability is a combination of your genetics and your environmental factors. And for multifactorial diseases, there's a liability threshold. And if you lie about it, then you're likely to have the multifactorial disorder. But for relatives of an affected individual, their curve is likely to be shifted to the right because they share the same genes and same environment, so they're likely to have a high liability. So different types of risk. Recurrence risk is the risk that if one of your family members have it, what's the risk you'll have it too? And that's likely to be higher if you have more than one relative with it or if you're a close relative. Whilst empiric risk is just the chance that the disease will occur in the family based on past history and medical records. So linkage studies can be done for Mendelian disorders. To, so first you look at what's the inheritance mode of the disease, find common markers in the family, and then you can try and find the exact area of the genome that the disease came from. Also for common con complex conditions, they use association studies. So for example, genome-wide association studies. So everyone has SMPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. So they, they get loads of people, like a thousand people, and they microanalyze. Are certain SMPs more common in people who have the disorder or not? But usually SMPs only increase or decrease the risk by a little bit because other genes and environment have an impact too. And it might just be signaling, like there might be markers just to show where the disease is probably likely to be. Because we share 99% of our DNA, did you know that? And everyone has 20 million SMPs. Gosh, and 60 DNA changes, wow. So genomics can be used in clinical practice, for example, you can personalise medications to specific gene variants or you can find out your carrier status before you're having children so you can decrease the risk of your child um, having a disease. Metabolism. So metabolism, you've got catabolism which is breaking down and anabolism building. And a builder, and a builder, anabolism is building because I'm a builder. Each reaction in metabolism has its own specific place, for example, glycolysis and fatty acid synthesis is in the cytosol, whilst energy metabolism pathway is usually in mitochondria. And you can other have you can have other stuff as well going on in the peroxisomes and the nucleus and stuff. And metabolism involves hydrolysis, dehydrations, phosphorylations, dephosphorylations, carboxylations, decarboxylations, and ligation reactions, which like to make the acetyl CoA. So substrate level phosphorylation doesn't use oxygen, but oxidative phosphorylation does. The energy from ATP comes from its two phosphoanhydride bonds, and it spontaneously goes from ATP to ADP to AMP. So metabolism of glucose involves glycolysis, oxidative decarboxylation of pyruvate, the TCA cycle, and finally the electron transport chain. So to start off, there's glycolysis. So glycolysis happens at the cytosol, and overall it makes glucose to pyruvate, 2NAD plus to 2NADH, and 2ADP to 2ATP. The rate limiting step is step 3, which is the conversion of fructose 6-phosphate to fructose 1,6-biphosphate by phosphofructokinase, so F6P to F1,6BP by PFK, not by PFK, phosphofructokinase. The irreversible reactions are steps 1, 3, and 10. So step 1 is glucose to glucose 6-phosphate by hexokinase. Step 3, which I mentioned before, fructose 6-phosphate to fructose 1,6-biphosphate by phosphofructokinase. And step 10, which makes um, the final reaction, which makes pyruvate via pyruvate kinase. However, for glycolysis to continue, it needs NADH to be oxidised to NAD+. So it goes to anaerobic respiration, where 2-pyruvate is turned to 2-lactate instead by lactate dehydrogenase, and it will oxidise um, NADH to NAD. And this will actually make 2-NAD+. So just to reiterate, anaerobic respiration happens because you can't oxidise NADH to NAD+. So you do 2-pyruvate to 2-lactate in order to make 2-NAD+. So for example, in vigorous exercise, glycolysis will stop, and lactate will be made instead, or in atherosclerosis, lactate will be made, which will cause like, chest pains. Then after this lactate is made, it'll go into the Cori cycle where the liver will take the lactate and make it into pyruvate. And then gluconeogenesis will turn the pyruvate into glucose again with the muscle. Because if the lactate builds up, it will lead to low pH and that will affect metabolism. So this gluconeogenesis that happens in the liver and it just takes two pyruvate and makes one glucose from it. And it's basically just the opposite of glycolysis except for steps 1 through 10, which are reversible in glycolysis. It uses different enzymes for this, but it's just reverse. So 
from 2-pyruvate to 1-glucose. Then the next step is pyruvate decarboxylation. Pyruvate decarboxylation happens in the mitochondria. So this only happens if there's enough oxygen, because remember it's oxidative pyruvate decarboxylation. And it just turns pyruvate to acetyl-CoA in general. So it starts off with the pyruvate is decarboxylated to an acetyl group, a two-carbon acetyl group. So acetyl group is just a two-carbon. Then the acetyl group is added to enzyme-CoA, which makes acetyl-CoA. And then NAD plus is reduced to NADH. So overall, we've got pyruvate, a 3C molecule, going to acetyl-CoA, which is a 2C molecule. And this is mediated and controlled by pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, which is inactivated by kinase phosphorylation. So when kinase is phosphorylated, it is inactivated. And this can be controlled depending on the environment. So if there's high acetyl-CoA, then it will promote the kinases to inhibit pyruvate dehydrogenase. So pyruvate dehydrogenase is inhibited when there's high acetyl-CoA. But if there's high pyruvate, then the kinases will be inhibited so that PDH can be promoted. So high pyruvate promotes PDH, but high acetyl-CoA inhibits PDH. That's obviously just like negative feedback. If you have high acetyl-CoA, you don't need any more, so it's going to inhibit pyruvate dehydrogenase. But pyruvate is not the only thing that can make acetyl-CoA. You can make it also from amino acids and fatty acids, but fatty acids don't always use PDH. So fatty acids are broken down by beta-oxidation, which then allows the CoA to be added, and then they can turn acetyl-CoA. Then we have the TCA cycle. So this happens at the mitochondrial matrix and involves breaking down carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, and it makes electron carriers, so your NADH and your FADH2. So NAD plus comes from vitamin B3, and NADH is a strong electron carrier, so when oxidized, it releases 2.5 ATP. Whilst FAD is found attached to succinate dehydrogenase. So succinate dehydrogenase is what FAD is attached to on the inner mitochondrial matrix. So succinate dehydrogenase is attached to FAD at the mitochondrial inner membrane, and it's a weak electron carrier. When it's oxidized, it only releases 1.5 ATP. So NADH is 2.5 ATP, plus FADH2, 1.5 ATP. Overall, the TCA cycle makes acetyl-CoA into CoA plus 2CO2. It makes 3 NAD plus to 3 NADH. So how many NADH does it make? 3 NADH, and it turns FAD to only 1 FADH2. So how many FADH2? Yeah, 1 FADH2, and it turns GDP into GDP by adding phosphate. So what does the TCA cycle overall make? It makes acetyl-CoA to CoA plus 2CO2, it makes 3NAD plus to 3NADH, it makes FAD to FADH2, and it makes GDP plus phosphate group to GTP. So anaplateric reactions are reactions that fill in the intermediate metabolites. So for example, oxaloacetate to aspirate, that's oxaloacetate to aspirate, glutamate to alpha-ketoglutarate, and malate to pyruvate using malic enzymes. So that's oxaloacetate to aspartate, glutamate to alpha-ketoglutarate, and malate to pyruvate. So that is the TCA cycle. Then the electron transport chain, which takes the electron carriers made from the TCA cycle and from glycolysis, and then they donate their electrons to the complexes on the inner membranes of the mitochondria, and then this makes a proton gradient in the intermembrane space. So firstly, um, NADH donates an electron to the complex 1, which causes 4 protons, so 4 H plus, to be pumped into the intermembrane space. Then FADH2 um, donates an electron to complex 2, which doesn't cause any pumping of protons into the intermembrane space. Then complex 3 pumps 4 protons into the IMS, to the intermembrane space. Then complex 4, which is cytochrome C oxidase, it catalyzes the transfer of electrons to oxygen, which forms water, as oxygen is the final electron acceptor, remember? But cytochrome C oxidase is inhibited by cyanide, by CO, so carbon monoxide, and by azide. azide. So this efflux of hydrogen um, ions into the intermembrane space, electrochemical gradient needed for ATP synthase to make ATP into the matrix. For each ATP molecule made, ATP synthase uses three hydrogen ions and uses one extra one, for ATP translocation. And remember, ATP synthesis is oxidative phosphorylation. So ATP synthesis is what? Oxidative phosphorylation. So NADH is only found in the cytosol, but it can't cross the mitochondrial membrane to be oxidized there. So how does it get there? It uses the glycerol phosphate cycle and the malate aspartate shuttle. 
So the glycerol phosphate cycle, first it starts off with NADH in the cytosol reduces DHAP to glycerol free phosphate, and then that can go into the mitochondria. Then glycerol free phosphate dehydrogenase oxidizes it into DHAP and FADH2, which now can be in the mitochondria when it couldn't pass through before. Whilst the malate aspartate shuttle, you start off with cytosol oxalacetate, which is OAA, then malate dehydrogenase um, reduces it into malate, then the malate goes into the mitochondria. Then the mitochondria malate dehydrogenase reverses it and turns it into OAA, and doing this makes NADH. So I'll just say again, OAA in the cytosol is reduced to malate by malate dehydrogenase, then it goes into the mitochondria, the mitochondrial malate dehydrogenase reverses it and makes OAA, which makes NADH in the mitochondria. But in brown adipose, their mitochondria have uncoupling proteins, so they don't make ATP. Instead of making ATP, they make heat instead. So brown adipose tissue is mainly found in neonates and hibernating animals for maintaining body temperature. So to control metabolism, metabolism can be controlled at different levels, such as the levels of ATP, substrates, enzymes, intermediates, and different organisms have different metabolic profiles and use different substances. For example, the brain uses glucose. So ways of control, for example, in phosphofructokinase activity is promoted by F26BP, so fructose 2,6-biphosphate, and um, AMP, but it's inhibited by ATP and citrate. So that controls the production of fructose 1,6-biphosphate. Also, there's GLUT control, GLUT... Also, there's GLUT control, so glutes, and those are glucose transporters. So depending on the concentration of glucose in the blood, they might need to reabsorb glucose into cells to remove it. So the cells use um, trans glucose transporters in vesicles, and then in response to a signal, they put those vesicles to the membrane and then they're able to reabsorb the glucose into the cell. Other places, such as in the TCA cycle, you can control, for example. There's also glucose control, so after the respiratory chain, this makes ATP, and then the ATP goes to ADP, which causes potassium to be removed and calcium to go in, and if there's high enough calcium, this leads to insulin to be secreted. Some diseases can affect metabolism control, for example, the war bug effect that happens in cancer, which causes pyruvate to go to lactate even in aerobic conditions, or maybe some stuff like diabetes, beriberi, um, or glucose urea, or mitochondrial defects, it might affect metabolism control.